I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today is the vice president and athletic director at Oklahoma University. Joe Castiglione, since his arrival, has won 18 national championships and has had four Heisman Trophy winners under his guidance. His ability to select outstanding head coaches that reflect character, ethics, integrity, and the value of the student athlete is unparalleled. When Bob Stoops retired, Lincoln Riley didn't miss a beat. Joe is proven as an individual who grew up on the marketing side, who understands business, the fan, the alumni, and most importantly, the student athlete. Joe is committed to the development of the student athlete as it relates to their academic and athletic advancement. Our guest, Joe Castellino. Welcome, friends. Joe, it's uh, great to be with you again. Your background, growing up in Florida. How did you get involved in sports? What got you involved and how did you end up going to the University of Maryland? I don't know how much time we have in the uh, podcast today, but uh, I'll shorten it best I can. Well, it would never have happened without the idea that uh, I wanted to be the first generation college graduate of my family. I had a members of my family that had gone to, you know, a couple of years of college, but not had finished. Sex, you know, my mother was a, finished a, uh, like a two plus year program to uh, become a registered nurse. But, you know, my father went to Florida State and ended up having to leave to go to the uh, Korean conflict and uh, was in the Navy, you know, for many, many years after that. And, uh, you know, most of my family on both sides, you know, just never really pursued you know, a college degree. So I really had that dream growing up. I just, for whatever reason, wanted to be the first. My family didn't have the financial wherewithal to to put any of our um, my siblings in uh, college. So I had to do it myself and work many jobs, you know, during high school to, to try to make that happen. And uh, didn't have any idea that I was going to go into sports administration, just you know, with the idea of completing college. And then uh, after that, I ended up in a long, circuitous way um, at the University of Maryland, um, and it was pretty much a business decision. You know, I had intended to go to the University of Florida, be a Gator, and I had applied, got accepted, but uh, had also applied to the University of Maryland on a whim because I had a friend up in the area, and that was, I didn't know anybody else at the school, and uh, I ended up getting a better financial aid. A package at Maryland, including a half a scholarship. And so that's how I got there. Um, started out radio, television, and switched to hearing and speech pathology, which I know, you know, seems like two ends of the spectrum. And that's what I was pursuing. And then um, I walked on for one year at Maryland and knew that wasn't going to be the long-term uh, <laughs> career for me, much as I loved sports. And just by... Um, you know, happenstance of trying to uh, stay around sports as a hobby. Uh, I asked to get a job in the athletic department that I could do while I was finishing my degree. I thought it'd be, you know, stay with the football program, be a manager or whatever. But uh, that was back in the day, Jed, and you were, you coached during this time. That was, uh, they had 150 or 160 guys out. So oh, I was probably in between 150 and 160 <laughs> guy. So I realized, you know, as much as I loved it, I only had a certain amount of money to finish my degree. I better finish it. And uh, uh, they put me in an area called sports marketing, which um, I candidly had never heard of. Uh, I had to even ask what it meant. 
but they said, just trust us. You know, you'll, you'll get something out of it. And it's a, it's a job. Again, I wasn't looking at a career. But one thing led to the other and uh, started thinking, you know, there may be something here, um, maybe something as a ground floor opportunity. Maryland at the time was the one of only three schools involved in sports marketing. The, the other two were Louisville and Michigan. And, okay. and they're all doing it at different levels or different ways. But it was so brand new to the profession. People really didn't understand its role. You know, really is something that was an outgrowth of what we see today and trying to de- determine ways of uh, strengthening attendance, uh, developing sponsorship, new revenue streams, you know, ever evolving areas around college athletics to try to create uh, the ability to fund other programs. Again, I thought about the idea of maybe switching my major, which I ended up doing in the uh, January of my senior year. I wrote to 86 Division One programs. And I remember that because at the time, that's how many were classified as Division One. Now, I know we went from 1A to 1AA, sure, and sure. FBS to FCS and all of that now. But at that time, that's how it was classified. And uh, started my career. I, got, I uh, didn't hear from the vast majority, not even a thanks, but no thanks. I got four letters of thanks, but no thanks. We'll call you if we think yes. this is possible. But one hit. And one was a maybe. The maybe was at Rice University. And the maybe turned into an interview. And the interview turned into a job offer. And obviously, I accepted it. I uh, accepted it in late April, graduated on May 18th, uh, went home to Florida for a few weeks, take all my college stuff, and went to Houston to start a, a full-time job and been working ever since. You worked your way up and you become the AD at Missouri. What was the time frame from that first job at Rice to get into Missouri? Started at Rice, I was there for 16, 18 months, and uh, had an opportunity to develop at Georgetown. and decided to uh, explore it and then accepted it. You know, after a year there, it wasn't really evolving the way they had um, planned it to evolve. And so I started considering some other opportunities and I got a call from uh, Dave Hart Sr., who was the athletic director, Missouri at the time. Coincidentally, Dave Hart was the athletic director at Louisville. You remember the story part of the story I just mentioned, he was one of the forerunners in sports marketing. He had gotten my name from a couple of people and asked if I'd be interested. And I was because I wanted to get back to a a program that had major college football. And being in a a, a college town like Columbia, Missouri would be ideal. And so I went and interviewed and uh, got the, the job to be their first marketing director. And uh, two, two people interviewed me, uh, Dave Hart Sr. and Jack Lingle. I know you know them both well. <laughs> and Jack was the uh, deputy AD at the time. He left uh, about a year and a half later to go be the AD at Fresno State. And then back to Missouri after that. But uh, So that's how it started. And I, I got to Missouri thinking, you know, I, I probably need to stay um, a little while. I'm three jobs in, you know, a little over three years. I don't want to be considered a job hopper. So I thought I'd stay. Um, But the opportunity to grow there and um, move up through the profession with my ultimate goal of being an athletic director, uh, I actually realized while I was at Missouri, you know, I was there 17 years overall. And uh, the last five of those were as director of athletics. You accomplish that move. And then Oklahoma, that's been struggling with their football legacy and with their a program and brand bring you in. And from that time to now, four Heisman Trophy winners, over 20 national championships in a variety of sports, hiring some of the elite coaches. Let's talk about what that journey was like when you got to Oklahoma, what you inherited, and how you, as we began our conversation, professionalized the organization. You know, it's really interesting, Jed, because um, you think about what's happened since I made the move. And uh, I was having this very same aspirations, dreams, visions for the University of Missouri and what we could do. And where Missouri had 
a modicum of success, you know, different pockets of success over its history. But um, I always thought that it was the sleeping giant and wanted to wake it up and uh, wasn't looking to leave at all. And one thing leads to the other. And uh, you know, after really uh, turning Oklahoma down twice, <laughs> I uh, had you know a little more conversation with them and uh, ended up accepting the job. Honestly, you think you know what you're walking into. <laughs> you try to get as much information and in a process to um, both parties learning about each other. I didn't know it had as deep of problems as as it ended up having, but that's okay. You know, in a sense, I sweat. What if, if everything was great? They wouldn't need an AD. <laughs> that's that's the job, and so. Um, you know, the opportunity to come in and work with a dynamic president, which I was doing, certainly somebody had already made his mark on him, really positively impacting the state. Uh, Who was your president at that time? David Bourne. Okay. All right. Yes. David Bourne and I worked together for 20 years. We could talk about that later on. But I really saw Oklahoma uh, as a program with proud history, tremendous tradition, countless number of successful players and coaches in a variety of sport. Uh, but, you know, for whatever reason, you know, a, um, you know, like a, like a once proud entity that hadn't had the right um, leadership and, and uh, care. So you had to kind of look past, you know, the, the problems as serious as they were at that time and see what could be and imagine the possibilities. And that's, that's really what drew me to Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, I really, other than, you know, being in the same conference, first the Big 8 and then the Big 12, I really didn't have any ties to the University of Oklahoma. And I thought that could be problematic. Jed, you know, in your business, you've been both from coaching and now search. You, you know that there are cultures and subcultures and no uh, provincial thinking. And, you know, there sometimes people like to hire leaders, coaches, staff that have state ties or university ties. So, you know, sort of part of the family. And I get that. We've hired some like that. But I wasn't. And I thought, boy, this is going to be something. I've got to build trust, build understanding, and, and build, build um, buy-in, which buy-in means, you know, it's the step to getting all in. <laughs> um, and so I had to really work on that with the ideas that I had about, you know, the program. And I always thought it would start with hiring the right people and it would be sustained by retaining the best people and uh, financial problems, you know, image issues, building the brand, obviously getting resources around uh, coaches, staff for student athletes, you know, would all tie back to having the right people in the right place and bringing more people together. And that's how we started. And then I, I knew that to get to the right place, I had to make sure I peel every layer of the onion down to its core. I mean, we have a saying around here, Jed, that, you know, if you pick up a rock and turn it over and you find something under the rock you don't like, you don't get to take the rock and place it back over it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to take it and address it, fix it, correct it, and, uh, you know, make it part of the growth going forward. And uh, we had a lot of those. You know, the, the, the programs, you know, most notably football, was struggling. Um, we had financial issues, had um, well over $15 million in operating debt. So the, the, uh, the budget was not anywhere close to balancing. Facilities were not in, in good shape. Um, but we had some good people, and we just needed to bring more good people together. And that's how it started, and that's how we've continued to evolve, you know, our blueprint since. When you think about football, I mean, you had an exceptional ability to hire the right coach. What was it? What, what are some of the keys that you look for in terms of hiring Stoops and then his successor on how you were able to have that aligned or have Bob work to be able to train somebody? What was the succession plan? So there are like two questions there. You know, what is it that you're looking for in your coach? And then secondly, how did succession work so that when he did step down, you didn't have to go external and you could promote someone from within? 
it was really an interesting dynamic because um, I think it it really uh, in some ways had uh, some similarities <laughs> to uh, the point that we hired Bob Stoops. Not so much the status of the program because when uh, Coach Stoops decided to retire, you know the program was in good shape. In fact, we knew he knew the team that he was handing over to a successor was going to be potentially um, very good. You know, obviously a conference championship contender and, you know, maybe maybe beyond. Uh, he had some pieces in place, including a returning quarterback who was very dynamic. But uh, starting with Coach Stoops, you know, we can get in a lot of details, but, you know, we hired a, a top assistant coach, you know, at a time when the program had been reeling and uh, had not hired, you know, an established uh, head coach in, in its recent history and had fired, you know, the last two coaches. So the pressure was really on to try to go and get a, an established coach. Uh, and I get that. Could have been, you know, uh, an option there for us. But getting to know the man as much as the coach in Bob Stoops, um, uh, convinced me, can, then obviously we're able you know, to get others on our campus, uh, notably our president and representation of our board and, and uh, key, key people to know what a um, rock star this person could be you know, as a head coach. And uh, in hiring Bob, we knew that um, we not only hired a, a great up-and-coming head coach, but um, we knew that between his skill and, and our support, we could help get the right people around him and, and then you know, build a staff that could uh, lead us back. And we didn't know exactly how long that would take. You know, I know, um, as history points to, we won a national championship after his second season. But um, we'd like to all say that we had that in the plans from day one. But I think it just goes to show that you never want to put uh, any kind of uh, roadblocks, hurdles, uh, even if they're perceived, you know, to putting um, players and teams uh, at large in the position to be successful. And I think Coach Stoops did that, developed the talent that was here when he got here, added to it very key pieces not only built a national championship program, but as you could see from his history over the course of uh, the, the 16 other years that would follow was a sustainable model for success. You know, we didn't win the championship every year, but played for four other national championships, won a total of 10 conference titles, uh, won at least eight games every year. And uh, when you get to that kind of success, Jed, you know, people think it's automatic and you look around the country, you watch programs that may have a run and then there's a dip, you know, a big dip, sometimes, you know, a precipitous dip. You know, I think that speaks, you know, to the skill of Coach Stoops. And, and then, you know, he not only developed good teams, but he developed great young men. And uh, I think that, you know, combination, he had coaches leave his staff to go become uh head coaches in college uh, football or move on into the NFL. But, um, you know, that I think, you know, the entire time, the one thing that I've learned about Bob that showed up in the, um, in his in interviews and we spent a lot of hours together before the hiring is that he was very skilled. He was a supremely competent leader. And I, I talk about competence, Jed, in the sense, in the truest sense that that it is uh, part of sports. Competence is not arrogance, um, but there is a bone deep belief that in, certain individuals have in their ability and their ability to teach and develop people and their skills, sometimes to a level that even the, the pupil doesn't realize that they have. Um, and Bob had that. Um, I don't necessarily call that an intangible, although he had a lot of other great intangibles that are a part of what he has become a Hall of Fame coach. The skill, the confidence, 
the appropriate amount of humility that went with it. You know, for Bob, it was always about the team, always about everybody else, not about himself. In the end, I thought that he had um, an amazing amount of self-awareness and you and your role, what you've done, both from coaching that you carried over into the search process, you know how important self-awareness is. You know, there's always this balance between, you know, EQ and IQ. And I think that, you know, that, that piece, you know, people's character and their competency really do play together. And it, and it showed and, uh, I think, uh, became part of the process where, uh, while we were talking about a succession plan, and that is true, we didn't really know for sure if we were going to, going to be able to have Coach Riley still here when Bob decided to step away from coaching. We thought he probably would have been a successful head coach somewhere else, and we would, you know, be fortunate maybe, but uh, go try to hire him and bring him back when Bob decided to step away from coaching. But we all know now that that happened a little sooner than anybody um, expected, and uh, no pun on our nickname there, but um, it did. And uh, we could talk about that transition, but it was unique. It was uh, in June, you know, the dynamics around that. But I, I do think when I look back that um, one thing that I'm forever grateful for is that um, the transition was about as seamless as anybody could ever script it to be. And uh, you got to give credit to the people involved in that uh, at every different level because um, that really helped us and help that team be as successful as they could in finishing that season. And then obviously the subsequent seasons that we we've had since then, uh, actually winning a conference championship in each one of them, you know, so we're, we're on a run here, of six straight big 12 championships. You have a basketball program as well, which has been competitive your coach just retired. How do you try to balance two high-profile sports when football is clearly seems to be the, the driver, and yet you have a basketball program? It's like the, the USC basketball, the, the Michigan, uh, the UCLA. I mean, how do you try to balance the two of those? Well, like what way? I mean, just the you know, level of profile and you know, to be able to give each uh, a, a chance to be successful? Yeah, I think you know, from the standpoint – from recruiting, you know, when people look at the school, you know, how are you able to attract the elite basketball players? Because when I was at UCLA, we decided we had to start recruiting out of state because if you're a football player and you thought of USC, if you're a basketball player, you thought of UCLA. So how did the, how did you work? How did your staff, how did your coaches, how did they manage that so they didn't feel like they were the inferior sport to football, that they felt equal? Well, it starts with the institution's commitment first. You know, we give our basketball programs the resources that they need to be successful in a very tough conference. You know, Big 12 Conference has proved to be, uh, over a long period of time, you know, one of the real dominant basketball conferences. Yes, I understand a couple of schools are from an ACC or an SEC like Kentucky or, you know, Big 10 like a Michigan State in Indiana, Michigan that sort of dominate, you know, the, the traditional space. We have that in our conference, Kansas won, I don't know, 12, 13 straight big 12 championships. I mean, that's crazy, but it didn't mean the rest of the conference wasn't tough. And, uh, uh, they, they were, um, we've had many, many teams, um, uh, in the final four, um, get to the national championship games. You know, in my time here, we've been to, two Final Fours on the men's side and three Final Fours on the women's side. Two coaches that just retired uh, about a month and a half ago um, were coaches for Oklahoma that led um, their teams to at least one Final Four, Ron Kruger in 2016 and Sherry Cole three over two decades. And, um, and a lot of Elite Eights and Sweet Sixteens, you know, backed that up. So, you know, I think our expectations are uh, – always uh, commensurate with the amount of investment that we make in the sport. 
you know, you can't expect it to be good if you don't invest in it. You don't invest in the people. You don't help develop and help support. But we get it, Jed. You know, we're at a an iconic university at large, for that matter, but one that has an iconic football program. I mean, Oklahoma is the winningest football program still uh, in modern college football history. Now, granted, um, University of Alabama has won more national championships than us, and certainly in the last uh, decade or so, um, you know, Clemson's come on the scene, other programs, Ohio State have uh, been, been terrific. But, you know, over, you know, the, the era that they define as modern, modern college football, going back to post-World War II, no program in America has won as many as Oklahoma. So you have that. And then you've got, you try to have the basketball program. So I, we understand that sometimes that just dominates. And obviously by the nature of the sport, it gets, you know, more attention, more attendance. Um, obviously we get that. And the coaches understand, but they actually love it because the time they're recruiting, guess what's on television all the time? Right. Oklahoma football. And when they bring recruits to campus and they bring them to the games and they see 85, close to 90,000 people in the atmosphere that is incredible, even outside the stadium, not just inside, you know, that becomes a great asset too. But then you look at our, you know, history in, in basketball, you know, we've been to five Final Fours, two in the last two decades, but um, we've had a lot of success, you know, had uh, some of the greatest players. In the last 10 years, we've had two national players of the year. The number one player in all of college basketball has come from Oklahoma twice. Uh, Blake Griffin was one, still playing in the NBA, and Buddy Heald was the other who was uh, the leader of that final four team in 2016. So if you see what you're trying to do and you have that vision that you want to accomplish and invest in it, number one, we said at the beginning, invest in people, then you have, you know, all the right to believe that you can make that happen. And we have. In terms of your basketball opening, was that difficult recruiting your coach or did they how did you go about framing it so that that would be an attractive opportunity? We had an open mind when we got into the search. Uh, we actually uh, had one announcement and then a week later had another. So uh, I don't know how many schools have enjoyed the opportunity to run two searches at the identical same period of time uh, that we did. And not only that, try to replace two legends like we did in Sherry Cole on a women's side after a tremendous 25 year career and Lon Kruger, who is, um, Sherry is already a hall of fame coach. Lon will be a hall of fame coach. Uh, he was with us 10 years, but had great success at many other programs, Florida, Illinois, Kansas state, UNLV where he was before we hired him. That was a bit daunting. Uh, you know, go back to a part of a question you just asked. I want to say this, that, uh, I know what perceptions are, but when I got out into the search um, process, the University of Oklahoma is very well thought of. And I give credit to the players, you know, that we, like we just mentioned, the success they created, um, the respect the two coaches had. So, you know, the, the programs had some panache, you know, they had, yes. they had uh, credibility, they were visible. And, you know, like anything in our world, people got to sometimes in today's world anyway, they got to see that something is possible. You know, see that a program can do it. And especially those that have done it, then it helps validate that possibility of future success. And so I think that helped get on, you know, not just us getting in front of coaches, but our, our opportunity got on their radar screen, maybe even before we connected with them. So that is a background. Um, we went into this wide open mind. You've known me long enough to know that I, I have a list of names. And, you know, with your, your background, you know, sometimes in your role, you may have a list of names. Sure. Sometimes when you get into the search, those names, some could be potential and some may not be for whatever reason. Timing, contract, family matters, or you find something out. 
you know, digging deep into a background. And so, you know, you take a list and narrow it down. Porter Moser and uh, Jenny Baranchek were definitely on the first list. They ended up being the two choices uh, that we made. And uh, once we had a chance to get in front of each other and get to know each other and talk through um, our opportunity and obviously much, much more. Uh, and what I did in background checking of them uh, before you know we even had those conversations, I felt strongly that they fit us well. And then the interview just validated it even more. Uh, gosh, I, you know, I, sometimes when you sit down with people and you do, you do your background checking, and I don't mean just checking a resume and making a call here or there. I mean, I, I go deep. I mean, I call coaches who have coached against them, coaches who have coached with them, people they recruited against, places where they work. I want to know how the secretary felt like they were in the department, how they treated the staff, how did they treat the media, how are they perceived you know, in a community, um, what makes them appealing to recruits. I mean, I go deep, deep, deep. Did you talk to Sister Jean? I couldn't. She has high-level security. <laughs> I just want to Sister Jean bobblehead, though. That's as close as we got. <laughs> All right. All right. I kidded, um, I kidded uh, Porter about it and said, well, you won't have Sister Jean, but you've got Father Joe. <laughs> Porter and, and Jenny fit us great. And um, both are off to superstars. All that stuff we talked about, Bob Stoops, obviously the connection with Lincoln, you know, he was here. He started, you know, we moved him in the head coach position, had his staff. But the same kind of process, blueprint, character, all those boxes that have to be uh, evaluated and checked appropriately, we did that. And the blueprint works. And I'm really excited about the future. Your program under your leadership, obviously is moving in the right direction. Now what's happening in college sports is another matter. The crisis that we face as it relates to concussions, uh, the name, image, and likeness, uh, leadership from the national office. Let's talk a little bit about some of these challenges that you're facing in the real world, not just on your campus. Because the, uh, the interesting part about your job, you may work for an institution, but you're in a conference, you're in a, in a uh, in the power group for uh, for sports, you're in the NCAA, so lots of different stakeholders, and there's lots going on more than I can remember going on in, in collegiate sports right now that you're going to have to grapple with. Where do you begin? Kind of takes me back to my my days uh, in high school and college. You, as a football coach, you remember bull in the ring. Yeah. Course. Just keep your feet chopping and keep your head on a swivel, it seems like. You just never know what, what um, uh, part of a 360-degree circle the, uh, the issues are going to develop. There are so many, Jed, as you mentioned, uh, and I think we just have to work through them separately, even though in today's world with the way people speed everybody up and having answers and social media driving narratives, you got to keep the main things, the main things. And, you know, for us, it's always going to be, what can we do to create the best possible experience for student athletes? Why would they want to make the University of Oklahoma a destination? For that matter, why would coaches, you know, want to uh, be part of the University of Oklahoma? It's the successful ones that want to be here, stay here, and continue to compete at the highest level. You know, those things we got to keep in mind. But you step back and realize these things we're talking about coming at us from all these different angles will directly affect those kinds of decisions. So we always have thought of ourselves of trying to be on a cutting edge, not worried about being a first mover, even if the first mover gets criticized for doing something they think is right uh, on behalf of the people that we represent. Um, certainly, we're doing it ethically and within the rules, but um, truly just trying to figure out how we can be innovative. Uh, in the area of name, image, and likeness, um, you know, we could talk about how and why we got here. 
but we're still not exactly sure from where we are right now how this is going to go forward. You know, the, as we sit and do this podcast today, um, we're, we're doing a fair amount of speculating based on the bits and pieces we can gather. Uh, and hopefully it, it continues to move in that direction. But we're not naive. We, we're, we don't know, you know, if it's going to stay that way. And, you know, you, you see so much going on in various states that are voting bills yes. to allow this. Um, in Florida. Right. Florida, Georgia, you know, just yesterday, we, even in our own state, there's a bill going through. Maybe it'll get passed before the end of the session. We don't know yet. I know Texas is on the precipice as well. Some people think it's better now to have a bill than not have a bill or obviously a bill that leads to a law because it, it's going to create and, and is in many ways already you know, completely untenable situation because uh, those laws are not written exactly alike. You know, so they have their nuances, they have their specific language, you know, some things they allow, some things they don't. Uh, so we don't have a unified approach for college athletics. That in itself is a big problem. That's why you've seen the um, activity at the federal level and uh, what's taking place there. Um, everything for more discussion around name, image, and likeness, student bill of rights. You know, there's people that are, there are people that are pushing for pay for play. We don't believe in that at all. But we do think there are ways that we can enhance a student athlete experience. Uh, sometimes these things seem to have simpler solutions than, than they do. Sometimes people that are involved in it make it harder than it needs to be. So we try to find the happier medium and work through those complexities, uh, have the right guardrails. So we're giving a student athletes those opportunities like other students have on campus, but not um, having it be in, uh, developed in such a way where we cannot continue with the model that we have, even if most people don't like to call it amateur sports, but it's not a professional sports model. Correct. Um, it has to be the, the model for the 21st century. So there's got to be some common ground here. And there are a lot of people working on it we work on it as athletic directors, but there are a lot of other people that are working on it, presidents to legislators to, you know, people throughout the NCAA and, and beyond try to find this uh, common ground. Uh, we have some other things that are developing. We just have to address those as, as they come along. Um, I'd like to think that we're more visionary than just reactionary to a lot of these issues, but, um, you know, the world has changed. Uh, if the pandemic didn't catch everybody's attention, and I can't imagine how it didn't, um, I think the pandemic didn't by itself change uh, college athletics. I think what it did is it brought, had created a period of time that brought more attention to the problems that existed pre, prior to the pandemic. And uh, we're not going back to the way it was pre-pandemic. You know, there'll be some normalcy that we can uh, relate to, but there'll be some things changing in college athletics um, over the next 10 years uh, that were probably evolving before the pandemic ever, ever happened. You know, the pandemic in itself is, is tragic, you know, because we're all part of, uh, you know, the, the society and how it affected people in, in such a, uh, you know, monumental way. And so um, we're hopefully we're finding our way forward and be able to learn, you know, what we can to be even better when it when it all gets behind it. And then you had the George Floyd incident. You know, so if you talk about two seismic uh, events that occurred, it was the pandemic coupled with Memorial Day, this coming Memorial Day, what happened with George Floyd and how that has just really unleashed more things as it relates to, you know, college athletes. Are they being exploited or you know, are they really... Uh, serving the institutions and is, is it amateur? I mean, that's part of what you mentioned. I mean, that, I think that also helped change the dynamics of what you're dealing with. At Oklahoma, we've always felt our student athletes had a voice. We always sought, you know, their input on a lot of different fronts. 
But uh, as we've heard in our world, you know, the student athletes are finding more of their voice. Maybe there were places where they weren't able, you know, to um, understand opportunities that they could use their voice. Again, we go back to the reason we exist is to create a great experience for them. We're competitive. We want to win. That's part of it. I've got a word over my shoulder here that is magic. And what that is really about is our core uh, values. That's an acronym for our core values, masterful, accountable, gracious, inclusive, and competitive. The decisions that we make in our program all flow through that filter. And we're absolutely committed to continue to do that way. But that doesn't mean you aren't strategic. You're not thinking about those things that help your program be successful. And at the core of it has to be student athletes. And uh, uh, the conversations that we've had, challenging parts of it have actually been a good opportunity for growth. You know, we've said from, from day one, you have to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. We don't necessarily go in all those conversations with all the answers. I don't know anyone that does. We work really hard to provide safe spaces where people could express themselves. Um, some knew what they wanted to say. Some had a message, but didn't know exactly, you know, how and where they could express it. You know, whatever, wide you know, spectrum uh, of, of topics and issues. Uh, and um, most notably, how we could all coalesce around actionable plans, you know, to create uh, equity, to create, um, you know, a, a more welcoming environment, more sensitive, you know, more understanding, more knowledgeable, and education helps that. We, we certainly want to band together to end racism and, you know, the, the lack of um, justice you know, that, that exists. Um, what that really means, Jed, you know, uh, whether it's um, acceptance of, of uh, the differences that uh, our student athletes have, you know, and, and we're saying acceptance amongst each other, acceptance amongst the staff, you know, how uh, great they connect with the campus and our community, you know, and, and how we're there to support each other. And I think a lot of it gets back to being knowledgeable, um, understanding, you know, realizing sometimes we all have some uh, advantages and disadvantages, and um, you know, but we we shouldn't have that when it comes to treatment of people and their basic needs and their and their basic interests. You know, because at Oklahoma there is one thing we have in common: we want to be together, we want to be successful together, and that's uh, it's been a great learning process. I mean, there have been times when I've that in these conversations that I think um, there was a big period of growth because I had to actually you know, be authentic about my own lack of understanding and, and be vulnerable. And, you know, you, you got to just put your title and, and all of that aside. You know, you've got to get on that level with everybody and, um, and, and understand that uh, we're only going to be better if we're stronger together. And uh, I, I think the last year has helped that. We didn't just have one conversation or just a few here and there to say we're checking a box. We've had ongoing two, three different programs a month for our staff and our student athletes. And then what they're doing day to day, you know, and having to be, you know, active in that space. Um, you know, that A that I have over here is to be accountable to each other places where you know to have to give grace and in places where you know you say you know something's happening that's not right and you have to be able to speak up and address it and uh i think that's been that's made us better and we could talk about how that that you know affects everything but i, I think in the bottom line it's it's made us better your sensitivity to people your self-awareness in terms of you being a leader that leads by example, puts the university, the student athletes first. I mean, that's been your hallmark. You're, you're, never, you're never pounding your chest. You're always doing what's best for the university. And um, I mean, I've admired it from afar. I've admired it being on committees with you. 
I've just admired the way you, you carry yourself with the class and professionalism that you do and how you emulate what intercollegiate athletics should be all about. So I appreciate all you've given to, to uh, amateur sports and to the university. I, I appreciate that, Jed. You know, I really never thought it was ever about me. I, I think it's about the collective efforts of everyone. You know, and I try to create that as part of our culture that no one has to worry about who gets the credit. We do uh, our jobs right if we serve our roles in the right way and we pour into each other to help others become successful, invest in them. There'll be plenty of credit to pass around. You don't have to worry about who gets it. Um, that was Coach, <laughs> Coach Noel always said that. Yeah. He never, Chuck Noel's whole thing was listen, if we win, Okay, so there's no team that had more people make the Hall of Fame than the Steeler team that's won those four Super Bowls. And it wasn't about an individual. It was about the, the group collection. But I can't leave this discussion without the re- discussing the Red River rivalry because <laughs> we, can't, we can't have a podcast where Oklahoma's on and you've got your neighbor across the south of you and you don't talk about what that Red River rivalry is all about with that enthusiasm, what that's like leading up to it and what it's like with the festival and all that. I mean, that's something people that haven't had a chance to witness it. They may see it on TV, but I've stood there with you by your locker room. Your teams were filing out there to do it. So I know it's uh, pretty intense and pretty special. I don't think there's anything like it. There isn't. I've been uh, part of some rivalries uh, and they're all great in their own right. Uh, Oklahoma is kind of uh, you know, one of a few programs in America. We have several rivals. Um, we have our in-state rival, Oklahoma State University. Obviously, that's an interstate rival. We've had one until conference realignment with the University of Nebraska, and that uh, that is a spectacular rivalry over many, many decades until conference realignment. Un- unusually, has a characteristic of respect. Uh, you know, you think of rivals and people at each other's, you know, throat and it's nasty and all that. Um, don't get me wrong. Both universities want their team to win. And for a long, long time, the, not only the conference championship, but the national championship ran through that game, the yep. outcome of that game. But at the end of the day, the respect <laughs> between the two fan bases is, is amazing. And then the University of Texas you know, is its own distinct uh, rivalry. You can look at it a lot of different ways. For over 100 years, the game has been played on a quote-unquote neutral site. But it's in the state of Texas. You know, it's, uh, it's in Dallas, Texas. And uh, for those who don't realize, you know, it's uh, equidistant um, between the two campuses. Dallas is uh, about three hours for each. Uh, the Cotton Bowl is an you know, old, venerable stadium site of a lot of you know, big-time games. But it's by by standards, you know, isn't up to the same amenities as all these great new stadiums are. And a lot of people have, you know, asked us when we're going to move it to a different place. There's not another place that can accommodate that many people at the moment. And, um, you know, in, in that kind of footprint. So we stay at the Cotton Bowl and will for the foreseeable future. You have uh, nearly 100,000 people in the stands. Half of it, you know, split burn orange and crimson. And I mean, to the ticket, you know, everybody has the exact number of tickets. The stands, you know, one stand in one side of the, side of the stadium is burn orange, the other uh, crimson. And, and, you know, we have the same rival that takes off from that game to all the other sports in which we compete. But the, the football rivalry is, is really the most incredible. For a lot of years, it was a non-conference game until the Big 12. So now it's a conference matchup, but we still continue to play it in um, Dallas. The part that makes it great is, um, is the passion. I mean, it, you know, Jed, you saw it. There, there might be 100,000 people inside the stadium, but there's at least another 100 plus thousand outside spread around the fairgrounds because it's taken place during the State Fair of Texas. And you could walk down a midway and one side of the street are Sooner fans and the other side of the street are Longhorn fans and they're saluting each other in whatever way they decide is appropriate. 
but it, it, it's a setting. There's nothing like it. And that's what, you know, probably is a big driver of keeping it there. Um, and we play it during the daytime. We've been asked to play that in prime time. And I get the reasons why, but we keep it in the daytime. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's the tradition that, you know, we, we just absolutely love. Both schools do. And it's the hottest ticket, you know, that, you know, even the worst tickets are selling for three or four times face value. And uh, not that there's any real bad seat in the stadium, but, you know, some are better than others. And then, you know, for the fans, they they mix with each other every day, every day. You know, it's they work in the same buildings. They're in the same towns. You know, they pass by each other. You could go down a street and there's an OU flag, you know, a Texas flag, an OU flag. A I mean, they keep the rivalry going all year. So uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, we have a lot of students that come from the Metroplex, even, you know, other parts of Texas and uh, come to school here. And then you, they'll, they go back and, you know, work and live, you know, in that area. So they keep the rivalry going. So the fan bases are continuing to grow. And yeah. uh, there's just nothing like it. Now, I will say, you know, that there is a side of it that, you know, the two universities do have mutual respect for each other because, you know, in this part of the country, there's a lot of synergy uh, between, you know, research and other other areas of, of uh, you know, academic pursuit that sometimes that the universities can partner because of their strength uh, academically. So probably, you know, away from the camera lens, you know, away from some of the rivalry talk, there's still a, a, a great deal of mutual respect. But on that Saturday uh, in October, it's as fierce as it gets. Well, Joe, it's been a real uh, pleasure hosting you for our guests today. I appreciate you carving time out to be with us. Uh, I thank you very much. Appreciate your time, uh, your willingness to explain how you've built this incredible career, and more importantly, how you've built uh, the University of Oklahoma. Uh, and its staff and people. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jed. Enjoy being on your podcast. Look forward to another opportunity. 